Okay, all right, Bob, thank you. Thanks so much. Um, well, I tell you what, we'll have everybody round up together. <laughs> the rowdy and raucous group. <laughs> Hi, Levon. Good to see you. We'll have everybody round up, and we'll begin with prayer here this morning. <laughs> we'll begin with prayer. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for our day. We thank you that we can gather together to learn more about your word. And I do pray as we look at these future events that are imminent, Lord, we would be those who live godly lives, that we'd be those who are found in the faith when you return. I pray, Heavenly Father, you'd use these words for our strength, our stamina, and our perseverance. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, last time we left off in Revelation chapter 22, we had talked about the imminence of Daniel's 70th week. And I'll show you a timeline later. We're going to put a bunch of eschatological terms together. And, but I want you to see that the 70th week of Daniel, or the parousia of Christ, it's synonymous, is an imminent event. And so we talked about that passage in Revelation 22.6, where we saw that all of these things will take place soon. And we saw that Revelation 1.1 said the same thing. So the whole book of Revelation is bracketed by the idea of imminence, the idea that the 70th week of Daniel can occur at any time. Well, that was built off of Daniel 2.28, where we saw that the things concerning the kingdom of Christ were always pushed off to the last days. Well, the reason why they're not pushed off to the last days is because you and I are in the last days now. So that's why Revelation and Daniel are different. You and I, ever since the first advent of Christ, are living in the last days. Now, we left off on this passage. Let me just read it again. Revelation 22, 7 through 9. John said, and behold. Now, stop there for just a moment. Notice the behold. Remember I mentioned that tips us off to something significant, often awe-inspiring. And here, it's the very speech of Christ. And behold, I am coming quickly. Blessed is he who heeds the words of the prophecy of this book. I, John, am the one who heard and saw these things. And when, I, and when I heard and saw, I fell down to worship at the feet of the angel who showed me these things. But he said to me, do not do that. I am a fellow servant of yours and of your brethren, the prophets, and those who heed the words of this book. Worship God. Okay, now, we talked about this idea of him coming quickly, and I mentioned that that was the adverb, the term quickly there in red, is the same as the noun, really. Which, so the, the adverb takus is related to the noun takos. The noun is these things are soon. Here, the adverb quickly really means the same thing. It's imminent. It's at hand. Jesus can come at any time is the idea. I also talked about the prophecy of this book. And remember we discussed the difference between prophetic literature and apocalyptic literature. Apocalyptic literature will give you signs and symbols, but they don't give the explanations to them. That's not how Revelation is crafted by John. When John has a sign or a symbol, he will tell you what it means. Uh, One example is when he talks about the dragon. He'll just say, this is Satan. Or the lampstands. He'll just say, these are the churches. So if he doesn't tell you what a symbol is, Uh, he'll directly allude to an Old Testament passage that tells you what the symbol is. So that's why this is a prophecy. It's not an enigma uh, all wrapped up in a question mark, as the old joke goes. No, this is very clear. We can understand what the book of Revelation is. The other thing I pointed out is notice here in verse 8 on the underline where John says, I'm the one who heard and saw these things. That shows us the apostolic eyewitness. Remember 1 John 1.1? And John says the things that we heard, the things that we saw, the things that we felt concerning who? Christ. They heard him. They saw him. They even felt him. They were eyewitnesses to these things. So you and I aren't eyewitnesses to who Christ is. We haven't seen him with our eyes. We haven't heard him with our own ears. So we're relying upon the apostolic eyewitness. The apostles are a unique group of men. They speak for Christ. There were four criteria that were true of the apostles that cannot be true of any man today. Number one, you were called. Number two, you were an eyewitness to the resurrection, 1 Corinthians 9.1. If you're not an eyewitness to the resurrection, you are not an apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ. 
Third, you were personally instructed by the Lord Jesus Christ. We see that this is true of the original 12, but it's also true regarding the Apostle Paul, who was taught in Arabia for three years, according to the book of Galatians. Okay, so remember, the initial disciples were taught by Christ for how long? For three years. That's how long his earthly ministry was. How long was the Apostle Paul taught in Arabia? For three years. So he's brought up to the same standard. Now, the fourth criteria is that the apostles did miraculous deeds. Uh, The example I like to use is in Acts 5, where you see the shadow of Peter fall upon those who are ill, they're immediately healed. Now, if I go and my shadow falls upon someone at the hospital when I go visit, it doesn't do them a lick of good. Not because Peter's somehow more of a believer, it's because God was authenticating that these men spoke for God. That's the same thing that we see here in John. He's reminding us of his apostolic eyewitness right there in verse 8. Now, the other thing I want to point out, so that's where we left off. Notice here in verse 9, we have at the end of verse 8, I should say, John ends up trying to worship this angel. So in verse 8, there's a shift from verse 7 to verse 8 where Jesus is no longer speaking. It goes to John, and I explained why we know that. There's a grammatical, what's called an asyndetical clause. Well, now John is the speaker, and he says he tries to worship this angel. Well, notice what it says. The angel in verse 9 says, do not do that. I am a fellow servant of yours and of your brethren, the prophets, and of those who heed the words of this book. So here we learn that we should no, at no time ever worship any other being than God. Why? Because to do so is to violate the very first commandment. Thou shall have no other gods before me. Remember when Jesus is confronted by Satan in temptation in Luke 4, 8, Satan wants Jesus to worship him. What does Jesus say? He says, worship the Lord our God alone. He cites from Deuteronomy 6.13. Literally, he says, you shall worship the Lord your God and serve him only, is how the language is rendered in the New American Standard Bible. So this is a reminder to all of us that, no, we cannot worship any man, any image, anything in creation. We worship the true God alone. And even John was susceptible because of the power and the glory that he saw from this angel. He thought he was probably doing a wonderful thing, but here the the angel reminds him, even if you see something terrific, if you see majesty from an angel, it still isn't worthy of being worshipped. We worship God alone. Okay, now, let's move on here. I want to talk about the nearness of the 70th week once again, because in verse 10, we come back to that idea. Notice in verse 10, it says, and he said to me, this is the same angel. He says, do not seal up the words of the prophecy of this book, for the time is near. Now, let me pull up my pointer. I just want to make sure everybody sees this phrase. Notice he talks about sealing up the words of the prophecy of this book. He's not to do that. Now, what's interesting in the Bible, there's two reasons why words are sealed up. One is so that they cannot be revealed. So sometimes you have a sealing up of words so they will not be revealed. But another instance you'll see, for example, in Daniel chapter 12... Words are sealed up, not because they're not to be revealed, but for their preservation. And I want you to see the distinction. Uh, Turn your Bibles, if you will, to Revelation 10, verse 4. Please turn your Bibles to Revelation 10, 4. 10, 4, good buddy. If you have a hard time remembering. (laughs) Revelation 10, 4. So here is going to be an example of the sealing up of words so they are not revealed. And remember, this was revelation that John saw regarding these seven peals of thunder. Revelation 10, 4, it says, When the seven peals of thunder had spoken, I was about to write, and I heard a voice from heaven saying, Seal up the things which the seven peals of thunder have spoken, and do not write them. So let's contrast that then. Here John was given revelation in Revelation 10, 4 that he was not to reveal Well, I think the opposite is being stated here in Revelation 22.10. He's not to seal it up, meaning this is to be disclosed. The book of Revelation is to be disclosed to the people of God. Do not seal it up. Okay, now, what's interesting is you think about Revelation 10.4, there's some other times we see in Scripture where the apostles were not allowed to reveal what they had seen. Does anybody remember a case where that happened? Think about the apostle Paul. 2 Corinthians 12, wasn't he brought up to the third heaven? 
And remember, he saw things that were too wonderful for expression, but he wasn't allowed to even speak those things, was he? Now, the reason I mention that is you have many books written today about people who have supposedly gone to heaven. Well, why would maybe a five-year-old, there was an example of a five-year-old who supposedly died and went to heaven. I think that's his age. Why would he be allowed to speak of the things of heaven, but not the Apostle Paul? See, it puts into doubt those who claim they've had afterlife experiences and are enabled to speak of it. Yet the Apostle Paul, who saw, we know he was an apostolic eyewitness to the resurrection of Christ, an authoritative spokesman of Jesus Christ as an apostle, and he wasn't allowed to speak of the heavenly glories. So I think it shows us that these people who claim these after-death experiences are really $3 bills. We have to go with what the scriptures say. We can't know God through these other experiences that people claim. Okay, now, let me show you another example of the sealing. And this is sealing words for their, perseve- or for their preservation. I want to show you an example of that because oftentimes, and I've fallen into this myself, people will look at Daniel 12. Per- turn your Bibles to Daniel 12, verse 4. Daniel 12, verse 4. And they'll look at Daniel 12 and they'll say, Aha! In Daniel 12, Daniel was to seal up the words of the prophecy... But here in Revelation chapter 22, John is not to seal up the words. And they'll say, well, there must be because there's added revelation. Well, that doesn't make sense because after all, Daniel, we were given that book as part of our canon. The Jews were, we as the church have been given that. In other words, we're not excluded from reading the book of Daniel. So he certainly wasn't to seal those words up to conceal them from us. So why was Daniel to seal up those words. Well, read about it. Daniel 12, 4. It says, But as for you, Daniel, conceal these words and seal up the book until the end time. Many will go back and forth and knowledge will increase. Now, notice the term conceal and seal up. There are two terms in Hebrew that have assonance. In other words, they sound alike. The term for conceal is satam. The term for, uh, excuse me, that's conceal. The term for seal up is Katam. So the conceal, satam, and seal up, katam, you can hear how they sound alike. Okay? But here's what you have to realize. In the ancient Near East, when people would have a document, for example, let's say you had a business and you had an important document, you would seal it with your seal that you had that was unique to you, and you would seal it so that it would be preserved. But there would also be another copy that would be made that could be read. So in the ancient Near East, they would preserve a text, not because it wasn't to be read, not because the contents were to be concealed from someone, but it was to preserve it. Okay, in fact, we have an example of that in Jeremiah 32. Who had the Jeremiah 32 passage? I handed that out. Oh, Brian. Yeah, thank you. So listen to this, everyone. Here's Jeremiah 32. It's 9 through 11. Isn't that the the verse I gave you? And what you're going to hear in Jeremiah 32 is evidence that one of the reasons why texts were sealed up was for their preservation. And you'll see that there were two copies. So listen to what he says here. I bought the field which was at Anathoth from Hanamel, my uncle's son, and I weighed out the silver for him, 17 shekels of silver, signed and sealed the deed, and called in witnesses, and weighed out the silver on the scales. Then I took the deeds of purchase, both the sealed copy containing the terms and conditions and the open copy. Okay, so do you see how there was two copies? So there's this purchase of this field, and he has two copies. One is sealed, and the other one is revealed. The concealed one is simply so that it's there for preservation. That's exactly why I think Daniel was sealing up his text. Yes? I just wanted to clarify the preservation is preservation from alteration. Isn't that true? Exactly, or destruction. Absolutely, but alteration would be, you're right, for the seal itself. Absolutely. So I think what we have to look at then in Daniel's day when he seals up his text, it's not because it's to be concealed from the people of God, it was to be preserved. Okay? In Revelation 22.10 that we're looking before us here, the explicit statement where it says, do not seal up the words, was the counter to really Revelation 10.4, where he was commanded to seal up certain things. In other words, in Revelation 22.10, we're given this idea that this is for the people of God. 
These words that we see in the book of Revelation are for us. They're to be open for the people of God. Yeah. So are we in the end times now? Absolutely. From Daniel's perspective. Absolutely. Yep. But that doesn't mean there aren't things that will happen yet. Exactly. That's like right. Daniel's 70th week hasn't begun exactly. yet begun. Right. So we're already in the end times. Amen. Yeah, we're in the last days. As we mentioned last week, the last days began with the first advent of Christ. And we see that according to Hebrews 1, verses 1 through 2. Remember, in many, in the portions, in many portions, in many ways in the past, God has spoken through us through the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us through what? Through the Son. So the reason I mentioned that last week is many people believe the last days began in 1948. That's not the biblical notion of the last days. The last days, be- and by the way, I'm not poo-pooing the significance of Israel becoming a nation again in 1948. That's a significant event. But prophetically, when we understand Scripture, the last days began with the first advent of Christ. And so through the whole apostolic age, the apostles believe that the parousia, the coming of Christ, and therefore Daniel's 70th week, is an imminent proposition. Imminence means it can break forth at any time, but it does not have to happen within any certain time frame. So some people will scoff at that. They'll say, well, look, it's been 2,000 years. Yes, and it's still that hand. And we know that every day that goes by, we're just closer. We don't know the date. So um, one other thing I want to mention with that, do you guys remember there was a passage in Colossians 1.24 where Paul talks about he fills up that which is lacking in the afflictions of Christ? Well, the reason that's a significant passage, many people look at that, they say, wait a minute, what was lacking in Christ's atonement on the cross? If Paul is somehow making up what was lacking in the afflictions of Christ, are we saying that there's something deficient about Christ's death on the cross? No, Paul certainly wouldn't say that. But the idea was that there was a full amount of afflictions that were allotted to Messiah and his people. And what Paul was saying in Colossians 1.24 is through the abuse that he took, he was filling up a portion of that. So think of it, there's a bucket, a, a bucket that will one day become full of the afflictions for the people of God. There's also a bucket that's being filled for the iniquities of the unregenerate. And at some point, these buckets are filled up. There's a full number of the elect that will come in. And when these buckets are filled up, the parousia happens. You and I don't know when those buckets are going to be filled. It could be tonight. It could be tomorrow. The last affliction of the people of God will be tolerated only so long, and then Christ comes. So you and I are living in those last days while these buckets are being filled, and when they reach their fill line and Christ breaks through the clouds, for the rapture of the church, we don't know. That's the kind of imminence that we see. In fact, notice here where he says, for the time is near. Does everyone see the term near there? The term is ingus. Literally, it is at hand. The time is at hand. What time? Well, the time that he had just taught us about from Revelation chapter 6 all the way through Revelation chapter 22. Now, how do we know that time period from Revelation 6 to Revelation 22 did not occur in church history? Well, one of the ways we know it is because of the severe suffering. For example, at the fourth seal, we lost a quarter of the earth's population. That's in the beginning of the 70th week of Daniel. That's Revelation chapter 6, verse 8. Do you know the worst casualty rate of any warfare on the planet Earth thus far has been World War II? And at that war, we only lost 8% of the earth's population. But in the opening battles in the 70th week of Daniel, according to Revelation 6-8, we're going to lose three times that. And that's nothing. Later, you lose a third when you get to Revelation chapter 9. So the point is, the casualties are something that we've never seen in human history. But it will happen in the 70th week of Daniel. How many in here have ever seen a bunch of demons come up out of the abyss? We're going to see that in Revelation chapter 9. Well, that certainly hasn't occurred in, in history. So do you see it's futile to say, well, Revelation 6 through 22 is just something that happens in history. That's what a lot of the reformers did. And by the way, what they would claim was that the Pope was the Antichrist. And so preterism, those who believe that all these events happened in 70 AD, that was a Catholic response to the reformers who kept claiming their Pope was the Antichrist. Now, I say that because how many times do you hear Reformed theologians now say, well, I'm a preterist? Well, if you're a preterist, you've got a Roman Catholic doctrine. That's not much of a Reformed doctrine. Are you with me? 
Dear ones, these things happened. Revelation chapter 6 or 22, I should say they will happen in the future. They have not happened now. But so these things are near. They're at hand. Now, let me show you some other passages that show us cross-references cross to this idea of this time period being at hand or near. At the end of Romans, Romans 13, 12, Paul says, The night is almost gone, and the day is near. Therefore, let us lay aside the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. Bob often shows us in the book of Acts this relationship between light and darkness. Here you see the same idea. Romans 13, 12, light would correspond to the messianic age. The darkness, notice he says the night is almost gone. That refers to the old age. So when he says that the day is near, he's talking about this future time period in which Messiah reigns. Now, how near is it? Well, we don't know. Is it five minutes away? Is it five months away? 500 years away? We don't know. It's at hand. That's the idea of imminence. Now, there was an objection. I was in kind of an informal eschatological debate about these things, and one person tried to claim, well, the term near as it's used in Revelation 22.10 or Romans 13.12, also I'll show you James 5.8, they said near cannot be thought of as being imminent. And the example they gave was in the Gospels, it talks about how the Passover was near. And the same term in the Greek that's used near in the text that we're looking at here is used in the Gospels for the Passover being near. And so the rebuttal was, well, certainly the Passover wasn't an any-moment event, the Passover always occurs on the 14th day of Nisan. But do you understand what they're doing is they're making a category error. Here's the category error. Passover is a known date. Right? The coming of Christ is an unknown date. So if you say a known date, the 14th day of Nisan, is near, you can look at your calendar and say, yeah, today is the 11th, it's three days away. That's a different type of nearness than with an unknown date. Remember, Jesus says in Matthew 24, 36, no one knows the day or the hour. So when an unknown date is near, how near? Three days away, five days away? So you don't know. That's the point. And that's why the nearness in the context in these texts, as you see on the screen, have to do with imminence. Yeah, Bob. That's, that's a good hermeneutics lesson as well. Yeah. Um, the Strong's Concordance or if you have more sophisticated things like logo software, yeah, doesn't solve every issue. You can see every single time in the New Testament that the same Greek word is used. Right. And it's a great tool to have. Exactly. But that does not imply that it doesn't have a range of meanings. Well said. And I, w I just ran into that while I was preparing in Ephesians for the apostles and prophets being the foundation yeah in christ the cornerstone right well you look somewhere else so you have the term foundation yeah well you look somewhere else and you see christ is the foundation and so then they say well see we got a big problem we got to figure that out yeah no you can use the same this figure or analogy right in different ways exactly because christ appointed the apostles and prophets they speak for him, yep. and that's what Paul is talking about in Ephesians. But it's not wrong to say Christ is the cornerstone Amen. or the foundation. Right. Because it's all of him. Amen. So we need to always look at authorial intent and the context, and not just say because the same word is used here, is used there, it has to be the same that solves the whole problem. That is not how languages work. English doesn't work like that. Right. Greek doesn't work like that. And I don't think any human language does. We can use a figure of speech in more than yeah. one way. Well said. And so, like, near needs to look at the context to know how to apply it in that situation. Exactly. And we can do that. Amen. We can do that. This isn't trying to throw up a smoke screen. Right. It's helping us understand the whole counsel of God. Right. Amen. Well said. Um, that's the one thing that hermeneutics, as Bob is mentioning, has to do with the art and science of interpreting. We always want to see how a term is used in context. Well, here, the context of nearness has to do with an event that there's no date for. Again, the Passover has a date. If I said my birthday is near, I know when my birthday is, and so do you. And so you could just count the days off. 
But the coming of Christ, there's no date for that. So the nearness of it leads us to imminence. They can break forth at any time. Yes, Eric. I just, I just wanted to support what you're saying. I think Jesus agrees with you too. Yeah. Okay? Yeah. And, and last week I, I mentioned that I had read somewhere in Luke, and I found the reference that I was referring to. Oh, okay. And it's Luke 8, starting in uh, verse 16. You know, and it's, it's the parable of the lamp. Sure. And we're all familiar with that. You know, no one after lighting a lamp covers it over. Um, and then it says, For nothing is hidden that will not become evident, nor anything secret that will not be known, be known, and come to light. That's future. Yeah, that's okay? right. Now, here's the, th- here's the thing that really hit me. Yeah. So take care how you listen. For whoever has, to him more shall be given, and whoever does not have... Even what he thinks he has shall be taken away from him. Yeah. That's a warning. That's, that's a whole lot of good advice. Uh, yeah. And that's Jesus speaking. So I just Amen. wanted to share that. Yeah, thank you, Eric. Yeah, this listening that's in that text is listening unto salvation, listening with faith. The term that's often used, akuo, is the verb for hearing. We get our term acoustics from that. It's the idea of hearing unto faith. Not just hearing, again, sounds go through our eardrums. A good example would be that Deuteronomy 6.4, hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one, the Shema, we call it. Well, it's not just saying hear this and, no, it's hear with belief. Believe these things. And so Jesus there in that parable is talking about those who have are those who have faith. And what, is, what they have is certainly going to be added to in the kingdom. But those who don't have, even what they have in this life is going to be taken away because they're going to perdition. There's nothing that's going to be hidden. It will be disclosed in the future day of the day of the Lord. And we'll talk about the day of the Lord here on the next slide. So Thank, great thanks. cross-reference. Yeah, Bob. I think I thought of an analogy that we could all yeah. relate to. Thank you. I'm hoping this helps. Um, let's suppose somebody is very old and... So we don't know anybody like that. But let's say we knew somebody who was very old and uh, landed in the hospital or something and then starts thinking, you know, the end of my life is near. I better make sure I have a will or I better make sure. Yeah. You, you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Very good. That's not the same as the same person saying my birthday is near. Exactly. So we know when our birthday is, but we don't know when we're going to die. Yeah. But we would use the same word, near. And so that analogy is a little more concrete in our life to show how the Bible is actually speaking the same way. Very good. So yeah, we know great the analogy. nearness of the Lord's return, but we don't know when. Yeah. And how do we know? Because we're in the last days. Amen. And I remember d- debating a guy, and he said, well, it can't be that way because it, w- it would have already happened before now. And I said, what are you talking about? <laughs> because had it already happened, we wouldn't be talking about the nearness of the Lord's return. Right, yeah. That, that doesn't make sense. And that it could happen at any time can go on indefinitely. That's right. And when we think we know, we usually don't. I don't remember if I mentioned this last week, but I remember the 80s when people were sure yeah. Antichrist was right on the scene. Right. Because the European Union was coming into existence. Yeah. And I remember books coming out. A guy wrote a book, 88 Reasons Why the Rapture Will Happen in 1988. <laughs> and when it didn't happen, the next year he had 89 reasons the rapture will happen. And, well, then that didn't happen either. So he finally quote, ran out of readers. But see, we thought, okay, look at the European Union. At one point there were 10, and then there were, but then there got to be, well, now yeah. it's going the other way. Right. And there's a new thing going on, and history's changing, and nationalism is going on. And what I think is, well, maybe history's going to go on longer than we thought it was. Right. Uh, see, we don't know. You can't build a theology on what you don't know as far as, well, you better do this. I just thought of another one. Yeah. I can tell you this for sure. I've been hearing these things since the 50s, when I started reading newspaper, yeah. I became a Christian in 1971. People who claim to know the future are always wrong. Yeah. yeah. What's uncanny is they're always wrong. Right. <laughs> Remember Y2K and we're going to have no electricity because all the computers are going to go down? Yeah. People were buying giant 
uh, generators and deep freezes and all of this stuff was going on. Uh, what happened? Nothing. Yeah. So excuse me while I don't get too excited. Yeah. <laughs> People say, well, by 2040, we're, the world is going to be in crisis because of global warming. Right. Does anybody but God know the future? No. Well, I don't know the future. So I don't know. Right. I don't know. You know, Bob, too, it's interesting you mentioned the, the 1988. One of the reasons why 1988 was such a hot date for these date setters, and by the way, when Jesus says no one knows the day or the hour, he's not literally even talking about a 24-hour period or a 60-minute period. He's talking about the day of the Lord and the hour of trial. He's just talking about no one knows when the day of the Lord is going to come. That's what he's saying. No one knows. You have no idea. Well, remember, many people understand the phrase this generation to refer, refer to 40 years. Yep. So what they did is they looked at 1948, and they believe that 1948 is the beginning of the last days. Why? Exactly, because they don't read Hebrews 1, 1 through 2. So if 1948 is the beginning of the last days and all these things are going to come upon this generation, well, now you're limited to 40 years. So it has to be from 1948 to 1988. So the guy that Bob was talking about says, well, it has to happen by 1988 because that's the 40-year window. Pull up Bob's article on this. It's called This Generation, isn't it? I think so. Bob, what Bob did in his exegesis, and this is one of the benefits of studying the Bible verse by verse, Bob wrote a whole article about how we should understand the phrase this generation. When Jesus talks about all these things will come upon this generation, like in the Gospel of Matthew, he's not talking about a 40-year window. He's using this generation as a pejorative. It's a pejorative for all those for all time who are in unbelief. And proof of that is seen in Matthew 23, where he talks about the unrighteousness from the time that Cain sheds Abel's blood till the time of the shedding of Zechariah, the son of Berechiah. That's the extent of the Hebrew canon. It's the entirety of it. So Jesus says all these things will come upon this generation. So he's not using a generation for a 40-year period. He's talking about those who are in unbelief. If you're an unbeliever, you're part of this generation. Mark chapter 9. The disciples go out. They're supposed to cast out demons. But instead of relying upon the power of Christ, they try to do it themselves. So they come back to Christ and they report, the demons won't come out of this man. And you know what he says to them? What will I do with this unbelieving generation? He links his disciples with those who are characterized by unbelief because they're acting no differently, you see. So this generation, what Bob astutely did is he showed, no, this generation isn't a 40-year window. It's what characterizes those who are in unbelief. That's what it's used for. It's a pejorative. So when we understand this generation correctly, we realize it can't refer to a 40-year window. When we understand the last days didn't begin in 1948, but at the first advent of Christ, now we're reading biblically, doing good exegesis, not sloppy exegesis. So let me show you one more verse on this slide here. Notice James 5.8. This is very important. He says, You too be patient, strengthen your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is near. Again, the term near, ingus, it's at hand. Now notice the term coming there is the technical term for the return of Jesus Christ. The term is parousia. And you may want to write this down if you're a note taker. The term that's used often in the New Testament for the coming of the Lord is the noun parousia. It's P-A-R-O-U-S-I-A. The parousia is so often used for the second advent of Christ, it's very rarely used for anything else in the New Testament. It's really a quasi-technical expression for the return of the Lord. In fact, when you read the theological dictionary of the New Testament, they'll comment that so attached to the coming of Christ, the second advent, is it, the New Testament writers deliberately refrain from using it with reference to Christ's first advent, lest you confuse the two. And I think they're exactly right. So when you see the coming of the Lord is near, he's talking about the second advent of Christ. It is at hand. Just as in Revelation 22.10, the time is near. Now, let's put a couple things together. I mentioned, and I can prove this exegetically, that from Revelation chapter 6 to 22 is about Daniel's 70th week. Right? So if that's near, and the parousia of Christ is near, I think it's fair to say that the parousia of Christ, his return, is synonymous with the 70th week. And I'll show you more of that on the next slide. 
So just as Christ's first advent wasn't just a one-day event, there was, remember he lived for, he was in his 30s when he died. He died, I believe, in 33 AD. So his first advent, there was many events within that. His second advent is going to be a complex of events as well for seven years. It begins with the rapture of the church. He comes for the church. The last part of the 70th week is where he comes with the church. So he comes for us to rapture us. He comes with us to set up his millennial kingdom. That's what brackets the 70th week. But all of it is the parousia. So the parousia of Christ then is synonymous with the 70th week of Daniel. Are you with me? That is at hand. It is near. When can it break forth? It could be any moment. But it doesn't have to happen with any certain time, within any certain time frame. If you think it has to happen within a certain period of time, you've destroyed imminence. Imminence means it can happen at any moment, but it's not constrained to happen within any certain time frame. That's the doctrine of imminence. That's what we're dealing with to this day. Okay, now let's turn to talk about some eschatology terms. What I want to do, because we're at the end of the book of Revelation, is I want to kind of develop our terminology for eschatology. And so I want to put a bunch of terms on the screen and go through them. And I'm going to be using this timeline that you see on the screen to talk about these terms. Now notice, I tried to put a timeline on here with the blue line. So just think of that as the history going forward. These red lines refer to Daniel's 70th week. So if you're new to my, and by the way, I apologize, my artwork isn't that good. But for an amateur, this is as good as I can do. From here to here is the last seven years. Here would be the three and a half year mark or the great tribulation from here to here. So I'm showing you Daniel's 70th week on a timeline. Now again, because this is near, this time period, we're living somewhere here during the church age, the time of the Gentiles, the last days, they're interchangeable. Now how close to this time period are we? Are we right here? Or are we here? Or are we here? We, we just don't know. Are you with me? It's just near. How near? We don't know. Okay, so let's talk about these terms. First of all, the 70th week of Daniel. If we're going to understand eschatology, we have to have an understanding of what the 70th week of Daniel is. And I want to define this because as I use that term, I don't want anybody left behind, not in the Tim LaHaye, uh, (laughs) uh, no pun intended, not in the rapture, you're left behind since. But um, cognitively, I don't want you to say, well, the 70th week of Daniel, what's that business? I want you to see where that comes from in the scripture. So please turn your Bibles, if you will, to Daniel chapter 9. Daniel chapter 9, we'll read verses 24 through 27. Verses 24 through 27. Now, this I love Daniel chapter 9 so much because not only the wonderful prophecy, but because of the beautiful prayer that Daniel had prayed earlier in Daniel 9. Now, we won't read that, but remember, at the time, Daniel knew that their 70 years of captivity were almost over in Babylon. Now, how did he know they were going to be in Babylonian captivity for 70 years and it was almost over? Well, he knew that from Jeremiah's prophecy in Jeremiah 25, 11. It was prophesied they would be there for 70 years. Well, that began, I believe, in 605 B.C. So as 535 B.C. is approaching, Daniel starts becoming very excited and he gives a prayer. And his prayer, if I could just summarize, he acknowledges his sin, the sin of Israel, but he prays that because God's name is on both the people of Israel and on Jerusalem, that God would remember his promises. And so here we see the answer to that. And again, the answer is the 70 weeks. Now remember, there's a play on this number. It's a real number, but there's a reason why it was given. The reason Israel went into Babylonian captivity in the first place is because they didn't believe, and because they didn't believe, they didn't keep covenant. And one of the things they had to do in keeping covenant was they had to allow their land to remain fallow. They couldn't harvest it every seven years. Well, because they didn't believe, they didn't obey. That's the relationship between faith and obedience. You don't believe, you don't obey. They didn't believe, they didn't obey. So they didn't obey, they didn't let their land remain fallow for every seven years. And so God says, I'm going to make it remain fallow. So he puts them in Babylonian captivity for seven times ten, the number of completion. You don't want to obey me because you don't believe and let your, your farmland remain fallow? I'll make it happen, he says. And so that was the 70 years. Well, now the great promise is, Lord, when are you going to keep your promises to Israel? Well, it's going to be 70 times 7. Again, the number of perfection. That's the idea. So it's 490 years. So that's where this prophecy comes in. It's a play off of that number. Oops, I'm trying to, fighting with my cursor here. When I have my pointer, sometimes I can't move my cursor. Okay, so let's read Daniel 9, 24 through 27. 
Here's the answer that Gabriel gave to Daniel. It says, 70 weeks have been decreed for your people and your holy city. Now, let me just stop there for a moment. Notice 70 weeks. This is what's confusing to people, and it's confusing to scholars even. The term weeks literally is heptaphs. It just simply means sevens. So it's 70 sevens. So the reason weeks are there is it's simply a weeks of years. So a week would be seven years. So it's 70 times seven years. Now, you might ask the question, well, how do we know that Gabriel is giving the denomination of years rather than days or weeks or months? Well, Bob one time, he astutely pointed out, well, that was what they were dealing with in Jeremiah 25, 11. They were dealing with 70 years. So the denomination at hand was years. That's what they were using. That's what Jeremiah said they'd been in Babylonian captivity for. So the 77s or 70 weeks are literally 77s of years or 490 years. Okay, so if you're a mathematician or you like math, put down 490 years. That's what he's giving them. So 70 weeks have been decreed for your people and your holy city. Now, what you're going to see are six things he promises, and you're going to see that these were not fulfilled at Christ's first advent. Notice he says it's to finish the transgression, to make an end of sin, to make atonement for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy place. Now notice of those six things, there's only one that was fulfilled at Christ's first advent, and that was the making atonement for iniquity. The other five remain for his second advent. No, no one in here, I think, would say that there's been everlasting righteousness. That hasn't come about the scene of history yet. Uh, what about the sealing of vision? Well, there are still prophecies and things that need to be fulfilled at Christ's second advent. What about the anointing in the most holy place? Well, that's the anointing of the temple. The kadosh, the term for holy, the holy place there has to be the temple. Well, the temple isn't even in operation now. Okay, so do you see then this awaits for the 70th week of Daniel, the last seven years. They're going to be fulfilled at the second advent, not the, the first Okay, now, notice verse 25. Now, here's the timing of it. And you're going to see three breakdowns. There's going to be a seven-year, 7 years, 62 years, or excuse me, seven years, 62 weeks of years, and then one week left over. Let's see how this plays out. Verse 25. So you are to know and discern that from the issuing of the decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince, there will be seven weeks and 62 weeks. Now, stop there for just a moment. When was that decree given? The best answer, I think, is the decree that Artaxerxes gave on March 5th, 444 B.C. We know that because it had to do with the rebuilding of the temple, but also the walls and the fortification of Jerusalem. That was March 5th, 444 B.C. That's when that date was given. And you can read about that in Nehemiah chapter 2, verses 1 through 8. So that's when the decree is given. But what's going to occur from that time period on? Well, he says in seven weeks and 62 weeks, so there's 69 weeks of years or 483 years, you're going to have Messiah the Prince that's going to come. Well, lo and behold, when you do the math, remember the Jews used a lunar calendar every 30 days. By the way, the New Testament writers, they knew that. Why? Because when it talks in Revelation 13 about time, times, and half a time, or the Antichrist would reign for 42 months, it's 1,260 days. Notice there's not some months that are 31 days there. Each month is 30 days. It's the lunar cycle. That's what they used. Okay? Well, if you do that with the math, the 483 years is 173,880 days. So if you take the March 5th, 444 B.C., and you add the 173,880 days... It gets you to the 10th day of Nisan, the Jewish calendar, AD 33, the very day. That's Lamb Selection Day, the day that Christ came into Jerusalem. And from that point, he was cut off. Okay, afterwards, he was put to death. Yes? I was just wondering what what the significance of it saying seven weeks and 62 weeks rather than just 69 weeks. Yeah, very good. And in fact, it'll, it'll point that out as we read. The first seven weeks or 49 years had to do with the rebuilding of Jerusalem. So that's completed under Zerubbabel and else the others by 395 AD or BC. So by 395 BC, you have the completion of that temple in Jerusalem is reestablished. Okay. So then 
what they would do is added to that is the 62 weeks, which would have to do with the Messiah alone. So the seven weeks, 49 years, and the 62 weeks, you add those together, the 483 years has to do when Messiah comes. Okay, so the first seven has to do with the rebuilding of Jerusalem. Okay, in fact, it'll point that out as we keep reading. Notice it says it will be built again. Well, what? Well, Jerusalem will. And that's the first seven with the 49 years. Notice it says with plaza and moat. Stop there. You and I think of a moat as um, something with a medieval castle and they got alligators in it and guys with swords and they're fighting and they're throwing. Well, it's kind of like that, but the moats then probably wouldn't have had water in it. They were defensive fortifications. The point being was Jerusalem would be rebuilt with defensive fortifications. That was all established and completed by 395 AD. I'm sorry, Eric. Oh, Lonnie. Um, you know, it, it would be kind of convenient if you had like a handout of this math of, okay. of Daniel 9 that uh, so it's, I don't know, it's kind of confusing to sure. jot down some notes, but uh, I only got so far as uh, 490 days, and then I got lost. Okay, I'm sorry. Well, you know what? There's a great, um, well, I'll do that. I'll, I'll, I'll get a, a handout that I can get to you guys. There's a wonderful book, by the way. It's called The Chronological Aspects of the Life of Christ. It's put out by a man named Harold Honer. Uh, he passed away not too long ago. Bob, I know, is using one of his commentaries for Ephesians. I have it as well. Very good. He's very good. Harold Honer does the chronological aspects of the life of Christ. He'll show you what year his ministry began, his, his earthly ministry. He'll talk about uh, the time, the date of his crucifixion. But he also gets into the 70 weeks prophecy. So there's a great book on that. But my simple point is just showing you where these things come from. So you can just simply understand where the last seven years comes in. That's my whole point in showing you this. And then we'll start getting back to the timeline. Yeah, Scott. When the calendar was set, the BC 80 calendar, was there, I, I thought there was like an error in, in, in um, the year that Jesus was born was actually 6 BC or something like that? Yeah, I believe it was 4 BC. Oh, 4 BC. Um, but you, you may correct, there, there's some debate about that, but it wasn't zero. And by the way, there is no zero. It goes from obviously 1 BC to 1 AD. Um, and you're right, there's different calendars. There's the Julian calendar, the Gregorian calendar. Well, that's what Harold Honer does a really good job in, is he shows how those calendars are related. And what he does is he puts it onto the Jewish calendar and shows when he does the math, that this comes out to the 10th day of Nisan, the, the 483 years. Okay, so remember, you have 490 years, 70 times 7. There's 483 of those years are fulfilled at the first advent of Christ. That's the big thing you want to see. So Christ comes in on Lamb Selection Day, the very day prophesied in Daniel chapter 9, the 483rd year, the very day. So that's one of the reasons why we should all believe the Bible. These things didn't happen by happenstance but by God's sovereign power. Okay, now let's just keep reading because we'll come to the last seven years, and that's what I want you to see, that there's a delay here. It says in verse 26, then after the 62 weeks, remember the 62 is added to the seven, so you're at 483. After that time period, the Messiah will be cut off and have nothing. Now stop there. Notice it's after that time period, Messiah will be cut off. So Messiah comes riding into Jerusalem on the very day, the 10th day of Nisan, they reject him. On the 14th, he is cut off. He's crucified. Why? Because he's the Passover lamb. You're to slay the Passover lamb on the 14th day. So it literally happens. It, it literally comes true. Well, then notice it says, and the people of the prince who is to come. Now, who is the people of the prince? Well, this ruler that Daniel's talking about here, this prince, is a reference back to Daniel 7.25 to the Antichrist. The Antichrist is going to come from an offshoot of the Roman Empire. So the people of the prince that he's referring to are the Romans. And so here now he's talking about the destruction of the city in 70 AD. The people of the prince who is to come will destroy the city and the sanctuary. And its end will come with a flood. Even to the end, there will be war, desolations are determined. So now we're still at the 483 year period, but we're after that. Okay, we're after that. We're in the church age, the time of the Gentiles. Remember Jesus said in Luke 24 that Jerusalem would be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles until the time of the Gentiles would be fulfilled. Okay, so that's where we are. Now, notice in verse 27, it comes back to this ruler. It says, and he will make a firm covenant with many for one week. Okay, so stop there. We have one week left. Now, on my time, let me pull up my pointer. That's this last seven years. 
Okay, now remember, this last seven years, there's a deliberate delay. This has to do with the second advent. The first 483 years, or 69 weeks, had to do with the first advent. Are you with me? Somewhere off the screen here. Are you with me? So that's where this seven years comes into play. That's where it comes from. Daniel chapter 9, verse 27. He will make a firm covenant with many for one week, but in the middle of the week, so that'd be at the three and a half year mark, he will put a stop to sacrifice and grain offering and on the wing of abominations. Now stop there. The term wing there, kanapa, has to do with literally with widespread abomination. We know that from Isaiah 8.8. 8. There was a widespread wingspan of desolation that came upon Israel as a result of the Assyrian judgment. So the wing of abomination simply says that there's going to be many abominations, uh, the uh, desecration of the temple, etc. That's the idea. And it says these abominations will come from the one who makes desolate even until a complete destruction, one that is decreed, is poured out on the one who makes desolate. Now, who is the one who's making these desolations? Well, this is the future Antichrist. And he's going to come to power at the beginning of the 70th week. He's going to make a covenant with Israel for seven years. But at the midpoint, he's going to break that. And that's where he's going to set himself up in the temple to be God. In fact, somebody had a Second Thessalonians 2.4 passage to read. Yeah, Brian. Brian could read that. Who opposes and exalts himself above all that is called God or that is worshipped, so that he sits as God in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. Right. So notice when Paul writes that, this certainly couldn't be applied to Antiochus Epiphanes IV, the ruler who did that in 168 AD. He desecrated the temple, but he never set himself up to be God. So this is still future in Paul's day. Okay, so at some point, the Antichrist is going to set himself up in this temple, and he is going to perform this abomination that causes desolation. Now, here's the big point I want you to see. It's this last seven years, then, that is at hand. And when we read Revelation chapter 6 through 22, it's covering that time span. So at the end of Revelation that we're reading, when it says this is near, that is what's re- that's what it's referring to. Okay, this is why in Revelation 13, who comes to power for the last three and a half years? Antichrist. So in Revelation 13, you know, well, I'm right here. Because I read that in Daniel 9. Are you, are you with me? So why are scholars that are reformed saying, well, this has happened in church history? Well, no, this is in the 70th week of Daniel. It's this time period that is at hand. Okay, now let me show you how this is related then to the parousia of Christ. Now, this is a term that I forgot to put on the screen, but write the term parousia. I want you to see that this time period of the 70th week of Daniel is synonymous with the coming of Christ. And I want to prove that to you. I want to prove to you the parousia, the technical term for the coming of Christ, isn't a single day. That's what I used to think when I was a brand new Christian. There's going to be a single day, that's the parousia of Christ. But no, it's a complex of days. It's the 70th week of Daniel. Let's prove that. Turn your Bibles to Matthew 24, verse 37. Matthew 24, verse 37 through 38 is what we'll read. So what I'm going to prove to you now is that that parousia is synonymous with the 70th week of Daniel. Once you get that, it it revolutionizes your understanding of eschatology. Because now you realize, well, no, the reason the 70th week of Daniel... The day of the Lord, the parousia are all near at hand is because they're really talking about the same thing. Okay, so let's look at this. Matthew 24, 37 through 38. Notice Jesus in the Olivet Discourse says, for the coming, now that's the term parousia, the technical expression for a second advent, the parousia of the Son of Man will be just like the days of Noah. Now stop here. Notice his point in saying that it's like the days of Noah is not because in the days of Noah they were so sinful and we're going to be as sinful. That is, I think, granted. But that's not Jesus' point. Jesus' point is, there's not, as it was in the days of Noah, there was nothing to tip them off that the flood was coming. They couldn't look out on the horizon and say, well, that's strange. I've never seen a cloud before. Well, there's a cloud. That's the point. Why? Because notice verse 38. He says, for as in those days before the flood, they were terrible sinners, wretched like we're going to be. Well, no, he doesn't say that. His point is this. As it was in the days before the flood, they were eating and drinking. Now, stop there. Is it sinful to eat and drink? No. Okay, he says they were marrying, given in marriage, until the day Noah entered the ark. Is marriage evil? 
No. He's talking about life, what's going on as it always was. There was nothing to tip them off. That's the way it's going to be at the parousy of the Son of Man. It's at hand. It can break forth at any time. That's the grand point. So, uh, I'm sorry, Eric, I see that you got yeah, your hand I just, up. Uh, it's a question, actually. Yeah. Um, I think that in the days of Noah, I don't think it had ever rained. Is that, exactly is that true? Right. It, it exactly right. It had never rained. So right. he was saying it's going to rain, we're going to have a flood. Yes. It never happened. Exactly. So Noah, in Hebrews eleven seven, it says that he built the ark being warned of things not yet seen. So the point is, what did Noah have? He had the word of God. It's going to rain. Noah says, I've never seen that. Well, God says it's going to happen. Build the ark. He trusted it. There was nothing to tip him off. There was nothing to see. There was nothing on the horizon. There was no sign that he had other than the word of God. That's the way it is in our generation. That's why Jesus says a wicked and adulterous generation seeks for a sign. Remember the term generation? It's a pejorative. A wicked and adulterous generation seeks for a sign. None will be given to it except the sign of Jonah. Why do we have supposed discernment ministries that are bringing you to conferences where the whole thing is about signs that you're seeing in your newspaper here and now. The parousia is a signless event, and a wicked and adulterous generation are the ones who are seeking for a sign. You have nothing more than they did in the days of Noah. There's no, nothing in this clouds that are going to tip you off. There's no alignment of the stars, the moons. There's nothing like that. It's at hand. It can break forth at any time. That's the idea. Now, let me show you the parousia. Everyone see that, Matthew 24, 37? The parousia of the Son of Man is like the days of Noah. Let's compare that term parousia to what he says in Luke 17, 26. Identical passage, but Luke just uses a different phrase. Luke 17, 26. Please turn your Bibles there. Now, I'm going to show you that the coming, the parousia, is synonymous with days plural. Luke 17, 26 through 30. So Jesus here is being recorded by Luke, and he's recording the same thing, but he just records it differently, but it gives us some insight. Luke 17, 26 or 30, it says, And just as it happened in the days of Noah, so it will be also in the days of the Son of Man. Okay, so do you notice the phrase, the days of the Son of Man? The days is plural. Well, that's synonymous with the parousia of the Son of Man from Matthew 24, 37. So if the parousia is the coming of the Son of Man, it is synonymous with days plural. So why was I believing when I was a brand new Christian that it was going to be a one-day event when Jesus himself says it's a plurality of days? Well, why is it a plurality of days? Because it's synonymous with the last seven years. That's what the book of Revelation is showing us. It begins with the rapture of the church, Revelation 3.10. Because you have kept my word, I will keep you from the hour of trial that comes upon the world to test those who dwell upon the earth. We're raptured out. The wrath comes. He returns. Those are the plural days of the Son of Man. So that's why we know, I think, that parousia is synonymous with the 70th week of Daniel. By the way, if we continued reading, we're out of time in Luke 17. What's very interesting is he's going to give the example of Lot. And just as Lot was saved... And those who were with him prior to the wrath of God. So that's the way it's going to be at his parousia, at his return. Okay, so there's a precedent set in scripture. Noah is saved prior to the wrath coming. Sodom and Gomorrah, remember when that wrath comes, Lot is saved. So the people of God are saved before the wrath comes. This is exactly what Isaiah 26 says. In Isaiah 26, God says, my people come up to your rooms while I pour out my wrath. The people of God are spared before the wrath of God comes. Well, when does the wrath of God come? It begins at the beginning of the 70th week of Daniel. And we can prove that. Okay? In fact, let's just leave you with this. Does anyone have the, uh, I think I gave to Linda, was it the Revelation 6-8 passage? I'm sorry, which one? Oh, you had Ezekiel 14, 19 through 21. Okay, that's all right. In Revelation 6-8, I'll have you read that in just a moment. In Revelation chapter 6-8, it talks about the fourth seal that happens at the beginning of the 70th week. So look on the timeline here on the screen. At the fourth seal, Revelation 6a talks about judgment that will happen. Sword, famine, pestilence, and wild beasts. Four things. Well, Linda, if you read your text from Ezekiel 14, we're going to see the sword, famine, pestilence, wild beasts are in fact the very wrath of God. 
fact, let her read that, and we'll just leave with this. Or if I send a pestilence into that land and pour out my fury on it in blood and cut off from it man and beast, even though Noah, Daniel, and Job were in it as I live, says the Lord God, they would deliver neither son nor daughter. They would deliver only themselves by their righteousness. For thus says the Lord God, how much more shall it be when I send my four severe judgments on Jerusalem? the sword and famine and wild beasts and pestilence to cut off man and beast from it. Notice those four things she just mentioned. Sword, famine, pestilence, wild beast. Those four things are in Revelation chapter 6, verse 8, the fourth seal. On the screen, that's right here in the beginning of the 70th week. Every scholar agrees to that. Well, remember she read in Ezekiel fourteen nineteen that these are the fury of the Lord. Literally, it's the wrath of the Lord. So if that's the wrath of God, why are people saying that the wrath of God doesn't begin until the midpoint? You see, the wrath of God begins here, and if you and I are spared the wrath of God, that's why we have to be raptured prior to that. That's the reason I had her read that. So that's what I want you to see. The entire 70th week of Daniel is synonymous with the parousia. Brothers and sisters, the Bible is clear. These things really are at hand. The 70th week of Daniel is near. The coming of Christ is near because they are synonymous. Yeah, Peter. It would be nice, like Lonnie suggested, I know you're just starting this first part of this slide. Yeah. But if we had the adjacent verses. Sure. And some of the mathematics, it's very confusing to the. Okay. So FYI, if we could ever do that, that would be a fantastic sure. thing for us. Yeah. You reference. know what? I'll put together some slides that will lay that out for you. Yeah. Very Th- good. Thank you. Yep. All right. Well, let's, let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, that your word is clear. We thank you, Lord, that these things are near and at hand. We pray, Lord, that as we live out our lives, we'd remember to live for your kingdom and not for the fleeting pleasures of sin. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.